This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 44. In this episode, I will tell the story of Dave Kunt's walk around the world that started in 1970. Yes, he really did it. Wow. Who was the first person to truly walk around the world? If you Google, here is the answer. According to Wikipedia, Dave Kunst is the first person independently verified to have walked around the earth. Yes, Dave Kunst of Minnesota, who claimed to do it in 1970 to 1974. Hello, my name is Dave Kunst, and I'm the first person verified to have circled the land mass of the earth on foot, with the exception of the oceans. Well, today, of course, we look at the Guinness Book World Records, Ripley's Believe It or Not, the BBC Record Book, the World Book Encyclopedia Yearbook of 76. You'll find my name there as the first person verified to have circled the landmass of the Earth on foot. Now, in all, I walked about 14,452 miles, wore out 21 pair of shoes, walked across 13 countries and four continents, taking four years, three months, and 16 days, and walking more than 20 million steps to walk around the world. The previous episodes of this Around the World on Foot series hopefully has taught you to become very skeptical of such claims, especially coming from self-promoters. Is his claim true? Did he really walk around the entire world in the early 70s? Was he the first? Was it truly independently verified and how? Well, with such bold claims, there are problems with it, even if Guinness or Wikipedia says it is true. The Kunst tale must be told, and it will be covered in two parts. He was not the first to walk around the world. I believe Constantine Ringarden of Belarus in Latvia was the first in 1894 to 1898. See episode 40. But I do believe Kunst was the first to walk around the world in the modern post-war era. But his walk had the usual verification issues as the other globetrotters before him. Dave Kunst's walk inspired and entertained hundreds of thousands of people. But sadly, the walk left within its wake tragedy, death, heartbreak, deception, and betrayal with a surprising ending. I will cover that. Nevertheless, the walk happened, and in the decades that followed, Kunst would inspire thousands of youngsters to dare to fulfill their dreams. Dave Kunst was born in 1939 and was raised in Caledonia, Minnesota. He was raised in the Catholic faith and attended a private Catholic school, which certainly exposed him to a greater level of rules from authority figures that influenced his later attitudes. He had two younger brothers, Pete and John. Dave said, My mom had an adventurous spirit, and she instilled that in me during my Caledonia years. His mom sometime would drop him off to go hunting for three days in the woods. At times on those trips, he wouldn't hunt, but would cover 20 to 30 miles each day exploring. He would always come back in a good mood. In 1959, Dave married young, at age 19, to Jan Wabner, who became a very important figure in the walk story. In her senior yearbook, it was written of her, quote, She can live without poetry, music, or walking, but she can't live without talking. David went to work for the local county highway department. In the 1960s, the Kunts had three children, Daniel, Deborah, and Brad. In 1970, the Kunst family lived in Wasika, Minnesota. 
His younger brother, John, who is also part of this story, was single. He had recently graduated from the University of Minnesota. Dave, age 30, and John, age 23, talked about doing something adventuresome, like riding a jeep through South America. But then Dave got the idea of a walk around the world from a friend. It all began as just an idea for adventure and a kind of revolt against the soft world in which we live. As the idea for the walk came together, John wisely came up with the idea to involve a charity with the walk. Around the world walkers of the past had used bogus wagers as the reason for doing such a crazy quest. For those, the public were sympathetic toward the desire to win the wager and assisted them in their efforts. In this way, walkers could travel on other people's dime. John's charity idea was similar, but even more brilliant. The trusting public would be faster to give free room and board for young men promoting a noble charity cause. They chose the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, or UNICEF, an organization that was well known in the countries where they would walk. Dave was hesitant about the charity idea because to him it was all about the adventure, but he got on board. He later admitted that the walk was never really about UNICEF. UNICEF was just a means to an end. They wanted adventure, but with this scheme, they could travel the world on the generosity of others who would willingly provide thousands of dollars for room, board, and supplies. And yes, maybe raise a little money for the charity. They would hand out UNICEF pledge cards to work on the sympathies of those they met. The pledge card idea was wise. If they would have instead collected cash donations, they would fall prey to robbers and bandits along the way. But the pledge idea would be ineffective to actually bring in donations. When Dave's wife of 11 years, Jan, learned of the three and a half year venture, she was shocked and rather upset. She said, quote, I always knew you'd do something crazy like this someday. Are you crazy? She really had no choice. She became a supporter and played the role of secretary, sending out hundreds of letters requesting pledges and equipment. She was very loyal and did an incredible amount of work for him. For Dave, the walk was the way of escaping commitments, a structured life, and just like the scamming globetrotters before him, trick the public to pay for his globetrotting life ahead. He was tired of rules and being told what to do. Years later, he admitted to a reporter, I was doing this for myself mainly. I was tired of Wasika, tired of my job, tired of a lot of little people who didn't want to think, and tired of my wife. The walk was a perfect way to change that. Dave's true hope was that he would be put in the Guinness Book of World Records and that he then could write a book and become rich. At the time, there was no understanding of the other previous walks around the world. Dave mistakenly thought that no one else had ever attempted to walk around the world. He said, Do you think we would be doing this if someone else had already done it? Little did he know. The error-prone Guinness Book of World Records at the time listed an 18,500-mile walk performed in 1957 by Dave Wan from Singapore to London. But if they would have researched it a bit, they would have discovered that Quan hitchhiked to London. He did not walk that distance. Hitchhike. 
criticism was heard around the town of Wasika. A woman in a laundromat commented, quote, I don't like it. He's leaving his wife and three children alone while he takes off on some crazy scheme. Dave's private reaction to this and others in the town was, It's you I'm leaving behind. It's you I'm walking away from. Dave quit his job and withdrew all his savings and retirement money he had accumulated and gave $3,000 of the $4,000 to his wife and hoped that the remaining $1,000 would be enough for the entire trip. Jen Kuntz knew that she would need to go back to work full-time to support the family, not expecting any funds to be sent back from Dave. She would be on her own. Dave and John expected to go through 11 countries and would use air transportation over the ocean. They said that they would not be in a hurry, wanting to visit people and hand out many pledge cards. Dave and John originally planned to grab backpacks and just start walking. But then a woman in Minneapolis suggested to them that they should walk with a mule. The mule would not only carry their provisions, but also call attention to their project. It also would help people understand that they weren't tramps hitchhiking and provide better proof that they weren't cheating, taking rides. They agreed it would, quote, add a little character to their walk. The two sought out a private interview with former U.S. Vice President Hubert Humphrey. Believe in what America can do and believe in what America can be. He gave them a letter of introduction that would establish trust and open up many doors for them. The day arrived, June 20th, 1970. The plan was to head about 1,500 miles toward New York City, where they would then fly to Portugal. The town gave them a great send-off that included a farewell luncheon held in a restaurant, and then a news conference. A large cheer went up from the crowd as the Kutz brothers and the mule made their appearance for the start of the walk. A major item of business was to christen the mule. The name Willie Make It was the result of a name chosen from a contest. They started their walk at 4.30 p.m. to the strains of King of the Road. On the third day, John recalled, We had only walked a few miles, but my feet were killing me. I kept thinking three years and 15,000 miles. They struggled to get the mule going when she wanted to stop, and that brought out onlookers and reporters. Dave later wrote, Any publicity was good publicity. We were quick to discover that, particularly if we wanted to get across the fact that offers of room and board and anything else that might come to the people's mind were most welcome. Like globetrotters of the past, the strategy was to get people to support them financially along the way. It worked. Many people would stop to ask questions, wish them well, take pledge cards, and offer them room, board, and cash. Care for the 370-pound mule was a chore. After just a few days, its saddle needed to be repaired and Willie needed to be shod with shoes. She carried sleeping bags, a tent, clothing, a camp stove, and food supplies, all weighing about 150 pounds. They took the mule to a beauty salon at a shopping mall for a beauty treatment. The other lady customers were at first shocked, but then they accepted Willie as one of the bunch. In Wisconsin at the state capitol at Madison, Willie grazed on the capitol building grass. In Illinois, they continued to make good progress. The goodwill of the people they meet on the way is helping conserve finances. 
Some people have put them up for the night in their homes, and others have given them free meals. They no longer had their mule hall cooking utensils or much food because so many people offered to feed them along the way. At Columbia, Indiana, they met a truck driver who had driven 30 miles out of the way to, quote, see two guys and a mule walking down the highway. He bought them dinner and wished them well. Some people disapprove of what the Kunst brothers are doing. One woman was horrified and accused them of aimlessly wandering around when they could be making money. In Ohio, they were preparing to bed down in a public park with sleeping bags when a family at a nearby picnic table invited them to join them for dinner. After the two explained their mission, the family invited the men to their home to shower and shave. In the absence, a prowler stole their sleeping bags. The police department heard of the plight and replaced the gear. At Wooster, Ohio, they stayed overnight at an unusual place. We asked the police if they knew of a place we could stay. They asked if we would like to stay in the transient cell. We said yes and walked in to look around. We thought we were just going to look over the place when we heard the cell door clang shut. They told us it was just routine, but it was a weird feeling. In Pennsylvania, they would travel on a berm of a freeway as traffic went by a few feet away at 70 miles per hour. Dave was questioned about leaving his wife and young children for this adventure. How could a man just abandon his family? By which I mean, what is the method he would use, and could anyone do it? He replied, I have my wife's full support. She said she admires my adventurous spirit, but passed up on the invitation to come along. She understood what I had to do after she was sure how serious we were. She said she married me for what I am. At Pittsburgh, the mule threw a shoe, and they lost a day looking for a blacksmith. The police helped them find one and let the blacksmith use their police car garage. Two officers held the mule in a frantic struggle to shoe her. The concrete floor of their garage was one of many that our mule fertilized along the way. After two months, they had traveled nearly 1,000 miles. The third brother, Pete, age 26, of Santa Ana, California, hitchhiked to Bedford, Pennsylvania to join his brothers for three days and then headed back home on a bus. It was quite an experience, said Pete, a former Marine and Vietnam veteran. He would later play a bigger role in the walk. At Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the two took eight days off waiting for their turn to appear on the Mike Douglas TV show. Welcome to the Mike Douglas Show. This is Mickey Rooney, and with us on today's show will be... Willie had come down with saddle sores, so they drastically cut down what they carried with them and put it on their own backs. They tried to always wave to passing traffic. When we left Philadelphia, the traffic got so heavy, we had to hold our arms up steady. On October 8, 1970, they arrived in New York City after about 1,500 miles and went to Times Square. We walked right down Broadway with our mule to Battery Park, where we touched the sea. We were both anxious to make New York because it meant the first leg of our journey would be over, proving we were serious. They boasted that they only had spent $100 of their own money on their trip to New York. The Coliseum Holiday Inn wisely capitalized on their attention by opening their doors to the men and their mule. The, manag the manager said, We have room for everybody, as the three walked into the motel lobby. Willie was quartered in the courtyard. 
His daily diet of grass is supplemented by what motel employees bring him, apple pie and other delicacies. Arrangements were made for them to take a freighter to Portugal, but it was delayed. Instead of just waiting in New York where lodging was expensive, the two with their mule returned to Minnesota for about a month. They rented a van and made it back home after a 22-hour drive. It should be noted that those who made solid attempts to walk around the world in previous years did not make such trips home using transportation. They continued on using their own feet. On December 3, 1970, the two boarded a jet at New York City for Lisbon, Portugal. Their tickets were paid by a Minneapolis banker who was interested in their walk. On December 10th, they began the next leg of their walk through Europe. The Minister of Tourism kindly gave them a donkey and a little cart loaded with food and cheese, but the little donkey was just too slow and small. Their pace drastically dropped. When they arrived at Lisbon, the Tourist Bureau understand their problem and supplied them with a strong army mule, which they named Willie Make It Too. They abandoned the cart in favor of packing on the mule's back. The tourism office called every village ahead to make sure they would be welcome and given food and lodging. Dave said, Many nights the temperature fell below freezing and many places we stayed had no heating systems. Most of the homes did not have running water. By mid-January 1971, they arrived at Madrid, Spain. They said that they were averaging 18 miles a day and the only inconvenience they have had so far was getting soaked to the skin through the storms in Spain. They spent two weeks at Madrid. The towns are much dirtier than in Portugal, but the people seem to be basically the same. The countryside is beautiful. Olive trees, grape orchards, cork trees, and reddish stony soil. On the beach along the sea, their problem mule tried to get away. We were resting on the beach when someone spooked Willy. She bolted pulling the ropes loose. It took us 15 minutes to catch her. If the rope hadn't tangled around her leg, she probably would have taken off back to Portugal. A typical day for the brothers was up at 9 a.m., down for a continental breakfast of coffee and rolls, to the stable to get Willie, then off to the next village, normally about 20 miles further. At night they would find the mayor. They gave him a letter from the tourist officials telling him to supply the brothers food and a place to sleep, and a stable for Willie. Dave added, Then maybe the mayor buys us a few glasses of wine or beer. In the evening we usually walk through the village to look it over. Before entering France in February 1971, they were warned by American tourists that the French would look down on them because they didn't speak French, looked like a couple of hippies, and smelled like a mule. Sure enough, the hospitality was drastically less. A famous blacksmith in Marseille was kind enough to put shoes on Willie. We were at the church of Saint-Tropez, France, when Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones got married. And now at last, Mick Jagger has found himself in the chapel on the hill overlooking Saint-Tropez, and is at last marrying his Nicaraguan bride. <laughs> the
The brothers learned to ignore automobile traffic, although it was probably their greatest danger. European drivers drove faster and more reckless than in America. On the narrow, twisting roads, thousands of frustrated drivers would whiz along, passing them on curves or shoulders. They admitted boredom at times. Anything over and over gets to be a drag. Walking gets old. Sometimes I wish I could get into a car and just drive away. John came up with the idea to meet Princess Grace of Monaco. With some contacts, a visit was put together because she supported UNICEF. On July 9, 1971, they were invited into the courtyard of the Monaco Palace. The funny thing is, is that although Princess Grace agreed to meet the two Americans who were walking around the world, when the arrangements were made, they forgot to inform her that we were naturally going to be bringing along our mule, Willie Macon. So we walked into the royal courtyard of the royal palace of Monaco. Princess Grace was coming down a spiral staircase, looking beautiful, just like a princess. All of a sudden, she spotted our big mule, Willie. She stopped on the steps, and she smiled a little bit. She said, I've met lots of people before, but never two guys with a mule. Will she kick? The Italians couldn't seem to figure them out. They made us wait six hours at the border because of our mule. Then we had to walk six kilometers to another border crossing. The Italians thought we were very funny and took us as a joke much of the time. They met another celebrity in a restaurant in Italy. He was Norwegian adventurer Thor Heyerdahl the man who rafted 4,300 miles across the Pacific on Contiki. I will prove that Peruvians were the first to settle Polynesia. He invited us to breakfast in his mountain place and gave us a copy of his book, The Raw Expedition. He told us, the world needs more like you. Don't give up. At Venice, they needed special permission from the local police to take their mule through the city because normally no animal, except cats and dogs, could be walked in Venice because it had very small streets. The brothers traveled through Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. Going through Yugoslavia, conditions were rough. They camped out nearly every night. The highway passes through no towns. It was windy, raining, and cold. The people were unfriendly, and the countryside was ugly. Near one town, after a sleeping bag and a pair of shoes were stolen, they acquired a dog they named Drifter to help them watch at night. In Bulgaria, their experience was worse. In the communist country, people were afraid to come up to them. Bulgaria was the worst of all. The feeling you would get there was bad. No choice, no freedom, no nothing. Because they were low in money, they couldn't go any place that cost money and couldn't socialize with tourists, which was their favorite thing to do. We have been through a lot. We never stay in one place long enough to get to know the people. We have been cold and wet, with no place to go except our tent. We have been cheered, booed, laughed at, and patted on the back. All I know is we need to keep going. Dave and John reached Turkey and stayed three weeks at the American Embassy at Istanbul. They were told that a mule would not be able to carry enough food and water across Turkey into Iran and Afghanistan. They were advised to get a cart with canvas and use it to sleep in. A little wagon was purchased for them. They christened the vehicle USA Turk Machine and left the city in mid-November 1971. A native told them to beware of wild dogs, wolves, and bandits in Turkey and Iran, and offered them a rifle for protection. 
Drifter, their dog, lost his life in a fight with two Turkish sheepdogs. They arrived at Ankara prior to Christmas and then walked 170 miles toward the Soviet border. We found out that the Russians had officially denied us permission to walk through their country because the weather was very cold and there was lots of snow in eastern Turkey. We decided to return to Ankara for a couple of months. They hoped to obtain visas to China once they arrived at Tehran, Iran. Over the winter, they stayed in an apartment provided by the American Embassy. As it turned out, Turkey had one of the worst winters in years. Looking ahead toward going through Iran, they said, The country is wild and the people can be dangerous, but the greatest danger will be the huge wolf dogs. Six months later, in August 1972, the Kunst brothers were in Iran. An Iranian citizen was interested in trading a camel for the mule. John said that they would continue to fight with the mule instead of switching. Things are getting tougher now, harder to find safe food and water, and the climate is hot and dry. It hasn't rained for two and a half months. The Chinese had turned them down, allowing them to walk through their country. Why won't the Chinese let two Americans walk across their country? It is for mankind, for a good cause. What could they be afraid of? The American embassy in Tehran had warned us it might be dangerous to camp in tiny villages that were off the main road. For that reason, we decided to make it to the Afghanistan border where we had been told was a military contingent. They came close to the border. In the morning, we will cross into Afghanistan, and then our adventure will start. We have talked to the tourists and officials about Afghanistan. They all say it is very dangerous. The people are poor and there are bandits. They advise everyone not to camp on the roadside or travel at night. Many people there carry guns. John wrote, Our attitude has always been, thanks for the warning, but we've committed ourselves and we have to keep moving. It's this going on in the face of almost overwhelming advice against us that bothers me. It's like a play with all actors playing their parts right up to the tragic ending. Despite the dangers, they felt welcomed by the people of Afghanistan as they went through the country. They were met at the border with soldiers to protect them. The governor hosted an official banquet for them and gave them a nomad dog, Drifter 2, to protect their wagon at night. After staying at Kabul for two weeks, they started out toward Pakistan. They believed the road ahead was less dangerous. But on October 22, 1972, word was received to the United States that in Afghanistan, John Kunst was killed by bandits and Dave was wounded. The attack took place about 25 miles east of Kabul. The brothers were camped in a rugged river gorge area when they were attacked. As they camped at night, six Afghans looted a nearby truck and then came toward them. Dave fired a warning shot in the air with his shotgun and shouted for them to go away. They did back off and the brothers felt relieved. But the bandits were determined because they believed that the cunts had money for UNICEF in the cart. The bandits circled around and fired two shots. One hit Dave in the chest. Dave then handed the shotgun to John and told him to shoot. John shot once and then was hit in the side. All the bandits rushed John immediately, and Dave heard John cry out. 
This is stupid. You dummies, please. Dave called John to fake death and heard John moaning. It was apparent at that point that a second shot was fired very close range, striking John in the neck. Dave played dead for about a half an hour while the Afghans unloaded the wagon. They came to him, thinking he was dead, and stole his watch. After the men looted the wagon, they left. I went to my brother and tried to feel a pulse, but I had a feeling he was dead. I told myself I had to get help, and I tried to stop several trucks, but they wouldn't stop. I thought of the mule and went back to the wagon and untied the mule, then stood on a water jug and tried to mount, but the mule wouldn't cooperate. She had never been ridden. I went back to the road and went down on my knees, holding my side. I was really bleeding by then. Trucks and soldiers passed by, but no one would stop. Police finally arrived at the scene five hours later and took Dave to the hospital. Dave refused to be admitted at the Cabal Hospital, which he knew was a butcher shop, and insisted to be taken to the American dispensary near the U.S. Embassy. He had lost a lot of blood, but was in satisfactory condition. The bullet had gone through him and nicked his lung, nearly totally collapsing it. He bled internally for several days. The news was printed on the front page of newspapers across America. Dave's wife, Jan, issued a statement, quote, We believed in what the boys were doing. We hoped that somehow through John's death and Dave's injury, their mission and UNICEF's mission will be furthered. They knew that they would have a lot of problems when they set out. We knew it too, but you just can't prepare for something like this. Dave would later be upset that the family kept mentioning UNICEF because to him, the walk was not about UNICEF. The family wired Dave money through the State Department to ship John's body home and also for Dave's return trip that they hope he took. Dave eventually contacted his family and said, John and I decided that if anything happened to one of us, the other would go on. I really feel that way, but I'd be unable to do it by myself. I'd have to get the cooperation of the countries I would be walking through. Just a few days later, police arrested three persons in connection with the murder. More arrests were made later, and the leader of the gang was Mohammed John, also known as Machu. He told the police that the killing was accidental. A police source said that the man would likely get the death penalty and be hung where John had been killed. John's body was returned to Minnesota and a funeral was held for him on October 29, 1972. Dave was still recovering at Cabal. Former Vice President Hubert Humphrey attended. Reverend Francis Kuntz said, Today we honor a young man who gave his life for a cause in which he so firmly believed. They were undoubtedly motivated to help the underprivileged children of the world. We deeply regret that their lofty purpose has, for one of them, come to such a tragic ending. Doctors soon recommended that Dave return home to recover from his chest wound. He didn't need surgery, but did need time to regain his strength. Senator Humphrey worked to secure military transportation for him. Dave returned home in early December 1972. He addressed a press conference at the Minneapolis airport. The photographers wanted romantic pictures of a happy reunion with his wife, which made him feel uncomfortable. He did not want to be home and didn't want to be with his wife. The walk will definitely go on. I want to keep the ball rolling. 
When I was in that hospital in Afghanistan, I got letters from all over the world. It kept my spirits up to know that so many people believe in what my brother and I were doing. I will be back to finish what my brother and I started, so he will not have to have died for nothing. It was hard for him to be home. He had gone on his trip to escape that life. Jan had made an amazing scrapbook with clippings and pictures about his walk that he looked through. But he was a changed man and didn't really want to be home with his family. He longed to continue his adventure and be with exciting people. Stay tuned for the second part covering the conclusion of Dave's walk and its shocking finish. With that, this is Davy Crockett and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.